This is the third message on living by faith in a sin-cursed world. The first message we looked at, the life of Joseph. To understand the fact that God has a providential control over every circumstance in this world so that he accomplishes his ends and purposes. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? You didn't send me. God sent me. He recognized that. Last week, we looked at Job 1 and 2. And there, I wanted us to see that living by faith in a sin-cursed world means we need to be faithful to God. No matter what circumstance we're in, no matter what you're experiencing, and no matter what you're feeling. No matter what you're feeling. What can happen as you go through life uh, when a storm hits is you know God's providence you know what kind of God he is. Uh, you live faithfully like you should. And then, over time, what can happen is as the trial continues, you know, usually we expect the end to come at some point. Kind of like when you get a, the flu. Some of you have been enjoying that. We enjoyed that a few weeks ago. And we say enjoy with lots of quotes around there, don't we? You know there's going to come an end to it. But when you're going through that trial and it keeps going, and it keeps going, or the effects of it continue on and are unending, what can happen is slowly and gradually your view of God can start to change. You don't deny Christ, but the testimonies that you had at the very beginning... We came with nothing into this world. We'll leave with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And shall we accept good and not difficulty as well? Those are the beginning testimonies of Job. Those beginning testimonies that you have, they've suddenly gone way back in the rearview mirror. Not the side mirror, because you know the side mirror, as they say, objects are closer than they appear. This is, it's long time. And your attitude and your thinking, your feeling, and your assessment about God slowly changes, possibly even drastically. How does that happen? Well, we still have a sin nature, don't we? We still have a sin nature. And as a result of that, you can start to make conclusions draw conclusions, make assessments from your vantage point, from your way of thinking, your knowledge, your experience, your understanding as the trial continues or the effects of it keep going on and on. That happened to Job. He started off great, didn't he? What a testimony he had in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But as time went on, his tune changed drastically. So much so that near the end, well, in some of those, the, one of Job's last speeches, he actually calls God into court. I want, if I could, I'd bring God into court and I'd put him on trial for what he's wrongly doing to me. Think about that in light of what, how Job started. Blessed be the name of the Lord, shall we not? except difficulty as well as good, from, from there to 
God, you've treated me wrong. I'm calling you into court to put you on trial. If I could, I would. But there's no other judge. There's no referee capable of doing that. God then spoke to Job, but not in a court of trial. Chapter 38, verse 1, and chapter 40, verse 6, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. And God does not come to Job as an equal. How does God come to Job? As God. God, as it were, put Job in his place. Job is not equal with God. He has no place to question him. So how did Job respond to this? And how must you respond when you start going through that trial and it continues on, or the effects of it continue on, and your perceptions and your attitude were not what they were when they started? How do you need to respond to live by faith when sin affects you as you think of God? Let's learn three lessons from Job here. The first, number one, is you must recognize how you're wrong. You must recognize how you are wrong. Job says in chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. And then Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. We have to recognize how we are wrong. Wrong about our assessment of why God does what he does. What are some examples of wrong thinking that we need to recognize? I list about five here. Number one, one wrong example that we can have is we think and say, God does things so that people will love him. This almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? Well, God sent his son into the world so that whosoever believes in him. Doesn't God do things to, you know, so that we will love him? That's not what we're talking about here. This is the view that Satan had of God in Job 1 and 2. Satan said of God, look at Job. The only reason he does that is because you're giving him all this good stuff. You're doing this good so that he will love you. That was Satan's accusation. And we need to learn something there. Satan is not merely attacking Job. Guess who else Satan is attacking? the very character of who God is. Satan's attacking God. Satan said that Job only served God to get things. His great wealth was the only reason Job lived for God. And Satan's assessment, his point of view, was from pure sin. Satan is nothing but pure sin. This is a wrong assessment. A second one. People can think God does things in response to people. He does things in response to people. This was the belief of Job's friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. These friends believed that God acted mechanically in this world. Kind of like this. If you do this, then God's going to do this. You deserve it. 
And so they believed Job was suffering because Job sinned. Because after all, God punishes the ungodly. Job's not having a good time. Therefore, Job must have sinned in some way. I would say that this is probably the majority view of people today, even a number of Christians. They will look at, if I do this, then God will do this. It's almost like bargaining with God. We can do that, can't we? Lord, I'll do this, and if I do this, please help me. Or we'll reverse it. Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll do this. It's kind of the first one there. You see how quickly we can fall into that even in our everyday lives? The third one, number three. The last three are from Job. Number three, God treats people wrong. I can't believe God is doing that. He is wrong in treating people that way. That's quite an assertion. That's quite a condemnation. That's quite a thing for Job to lay at God's door, isn't it? Let me give you some passages if you want to look at that. I'm in chapter 10 and verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 3, Job said, You are oppressing, you're oppressing me, and you're smiling on the wicked. In chapter 16, verses 9 to 12, Lord, you're attacking me in anger. In chapter 19, verses 6 to 11, Lord, you're considering me as an enemy. I love you. I believe in you. I've lived for you. You're wrong. You're treating me wrong. Chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, you are denying me justice. You're not treating me right. You are wrong. Chapter 30, last one, chapter 30, verses 19 to 21. You're ruthlessly mistreating me. It's almost as if Job is saying something along this line. Lord, from my point of view, from my interpretation, you are wrongly mistreating me. I don't deserve this. And we should probably add in there one more description from when Job says, as it were, my point of view, we could say from my worm's eye view of things. But Job wouldn't want to say that because it kind of humbles himself. Job has been suffering and suffering and suffering. Lord, from my point of view, you are doing wrong. Number four, God doesn't care that people suffer. God doesn't care that people suffer. For this, you'd want to look at chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 12. God is allowing the widow and the poor, the orphan and the needy, to be oppressed by the wicked. God's heartless. He's callous. He's uncaring. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that people suffer. From my point of view, from my worm's eye point of view, God doesn't care that people suffer. Number five, a fifth way that we can wrongly interpret God, understand God, and view God, that we need to recognize how we're wrong. Number five, God doesn't know what he's doing. God doesn't know what he's doing. He's made a mistake. God doesn't know what he's doing. He's made a mistake. This is chapter 31. Chapter 31. I never did anything wrong. I didn't do anything to deserve this. What have I done to deserve this? Have you ever thought that? 
What did I do? How have I wronged you, God? I didn't deserve this. And the conclusion of that is he's made a mistake. And where that leads is God doesn't know what he's doing. He's wrong. He's an amateur. He's in the minor league. He's bungled this. He's mismanaged things. He's fumbled it. He's called the wrong play. He doesn't know what he's doing. When sin affects what you think about God, you must first recognize how you are wrong. Then number two, you must recognize why you're wrong. You must recognize, number two, why you're wrong. Why are you wrong? Boy, nobody likes to be told they're wrong, do they? You're wrong. Recognize why you're wrong. This is the point of God's speaking to Job from the whirlwind in chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41. In the first part, number one, he says, you will never fully understand God's control of the universe. Why are you wrong? First reason, you will never fully understand God's control of the universe. Why can't you fully grasp it? Why can't you fully comprehend what God does what he does? You're not his equal. You are not his equal. How do I help convince you of this? Well, I give you the Bible. We can read the word. I took the opportunity to quote a passage from Job on the front of your bulletin. So why don't you take your bulletin there. Job chapter 38 at the bottom there. God asks Job, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? It's a constellation, a series of stars. Or loose the belt of Orion. Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over them? What's the answer to all these things? No, you can't. You are not my equal. This is a picture from the, well, your tax dollars at work, okay? Well, the, the most recent space telescope, the Webb telescope that was uh, put into orbit. This was released a few weeks ago. And as it was described, it was something like this. This section of the universe uh, is like if you held a, a grain of sand at arm's length. That's the size of the universe that this picture is talking about. Now, look at that picture. And what do you see there? Yeah, you see stars, but what else do you see there? There are galaxies. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of galaxies. And that little spot, consider this, that little grain of sand in that part of the sky, and how much else is there of the universe? This is just a tiny little bit. A tiny little bit. And we think about our galaxy, the Milky Way, and how wide, expansive, huge it is. We can't grasp that much less hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of other galaxies like that. We can never fully understand God's control of the universe. Everything in creation, it exists because of God. 
Everything in the universe exists because of God and nothing is spinning on its own. Who's in control of everything? Who has named every star? Folks, I sometimes can't remember how many grandchildren I have now. Is it six or seven? It's seven. So we have eight coming in December. See what I mean? That's just grandkids. How many times have I looked at my kids and said, Ashley, no, Meg, Megan, no, you're not Megan. Um, you, come here. Just children. And God holds this entire created order. Yes, earth. Yes, your life. But every of the billions and trillions of stars and galaxies, and he doesn't break a sweat doing it. He doesn't break a sweat doing it. Why are you wrong? Because you can never fully, never fully understand God. And so you cannot view anything from God's standpoint accurately because you aren't God. This universe doesn't exist for you. This universe exists by and for whom? The Lord. For from him and through him and to him are all things. A second reason why you and I are wrong in these wrong assessments listed in number one is that you will never fully understand how God controls the universe. You'll never fully understand how God controls God says in chapter 40 and verse 9, Hey, Job, you think you're like me? Well, until you can bring every wrong of human life to judgment, you can't be on my level. You'd want to look at chapter 40, verses 11 to 14. In fact, let's flip over there and listen to what the Lord says. Chapter 40, verses 11 to 14. God says to Job, chapter 40, verse 11, Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread the wicked, implied all the wicked, everyone who is wicked in their place. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Could Job do that? Can Job bring every wicked person to justice? No, he can't. He can't do that. In chapter 41, God talks about two mighty beings, beasts, animals, Leviathan and Behemoth. Can Job control them? No. God's point is this. You can't control these two created beings. What makes you think that you can rightly assess and control me? You can't. You can't. We are not on the same level. God says to Job, and God says to you and me, we are not on the same level. We have an expression that we use sometimes. You're not even in the same ballpark. You're not in the same football field, you know? how inaccurate that is compared to God because that's bringing God into our ballpark. That's bringing God down to our level. We can't do that. 
the best we can do is this. We are creation, and he is the creator. There is an infinite eternity's distance between us. We can never fully understand who God is, how God does what he does. So God corrected Job. How did Job respond? And how should you respond when we have wrong beliefs about God? Number three, you must repent of your wrong beliefs. You must repent of your wrong beliefs. Note, Job did not repent of sin that he was being disciplined for. Because what kind of a man was he that we saw last week in chapter 1? Blameless, godly, loved the Lord, worshipped him. He was not repenting of sin, but he got to the point where we had wrong, he had wrong beliefs and assessments about God. And so what was his response when God brought him to task for this? Verse 6. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. We might kind of pull back at that a bit and say, wait a minute, we have to repent about a wrong belief? Think about that, who that wrong belief is about. about. It's about the infinite and perfect spirit in whom all things have their source, support, and end. It is about that perfect God whose characteristic, one of his essential attributes is truth? Can there be two existing opposite statements about God? There cannot. There is only one truth. And when we are wrong and we see that, what's the only correct response? We have to turn from that. Repent 180 degrees. Do you remember from our series on gospel truths what repentance involves? There must be a change of thinking. I was thinking wrong, and I need to change my thinking so that it is right in line with what God says. There must be a change of affection, our heart toward that. I, I didn't accept it. I didn't love it. I have to love it now because it's God. There's not only a change of mind, there's not only a change of the ascent in the heart, but there's also a change of the will. One from revulsion to absolute trust, unreserved dependence on the Lord. Job learned he was wrong because God personally answered Job out of the whirlwind. He said, I've heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Well, does this mean that God is going to personally appear to you in your own little, in his own little whirlwind in your devotional closet tomorrow morning when you have your devotions to show you how you're wrong? No, he's not. So how can you know, how can you learn when you're wrong? How can you learn how to be corrected? You're holding it in your hands, brothers and sisters, in the scriptures. All scriptures given by inspiration, of God, it is profitable for reproof, that means showing you what's wrong, correction, teaching you what's right, 
Well, the doctrine, the reproof, the correction, and the training, the disciplining you, the keeping you on the right way, that's why it's so important to regularly hear and be in God's Word. That's why we as God's people need to teach God's Word to each other. Continually speaking the Word of the Lord. It wasn't experiences that brought Job to his knees. It wasn't his circumstances that convinced him that he was wrong. It was truth from God. And there's a lesson that we need to learn there. Many times we will pray for someone who is going through a hard time. Lord, use this experience to bring them to you. I think we know what's meant by that. But can an experience in and of itself really bring someone to repentance? Can an experience in and of itself bring someone to faith in Christ? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of the Lord. It's the Word of God. And that's what we must pray for. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn from Job here and Job's friends to beware of pride. To beware of pride. To beware of being self-oriented. I think this or I think that. We need to beware of unbelief. Unbelief that would say, I just can't believe God would do this. Now there's a difference between in faith and grief saying, Lord, I'm struggling to understand why. But that's one of the whole points of these first few messages on living by faith in a sin-cursed world is we must know that God is sovereign and he works providentially all things for good. And it comes a point when we have to say, I don't know why. But I know who God is. Let me encourage you. Don't take on the burden of saying, what is God doing? Who is the only one who should really carry that burden of what is God doing? The Lord. Who is the only one who really can carry that? The Lord. What if you tried to carry the burden of trying to grasp fully what God is doing? That would be a weight you couldn't handle. We don't have God's infinite knowledge. We don't have God's infinite power. When your focus starts being on what and the why of what God is doing, you know what you're not focusing on then? You're not focusing on what you should be doing. Let God be God. As the old hymn says, trust and obey. God does tell us in the Bible about his sovereignty and providence. He tells us the truth about it, that he does whatever he wishes. He'll accomplish his purposes, his plan and will. As Nebuchadnezzar will say in Daniel 4, none can thwart him. None can fully know and explain. So if you can't get to the bottom of what God, why God does what he does, why does he tell us 
that he's in control of everything? Why does he tell us about his providence? Why does he tell us about his sovereignty? Let me tell you why he does. So that we will glorify him. He's God and I'm not. So that you will trust him. So that you have your confidence in him. So that you'll be humble before him. So that you will have comfort and confidence no matter what the circumstances. Because you know what God said. That he causes all things to work together for good. And we leave that in the Lord's hands. God's will for you is to obey him by faith. God's will for you is not to get to the bottom of everything that God does. God's will for you is to obey him by faith so that you will trust him. Does this mean we're just kind of robots? Just kind of go through life like a puppet on a string? Does this mean that we're just kind of victims and we just kind of have to bear it? Like if you fall down the stairs, this is all, as it's sometimes said, you fall down the stairs and it's, well, I believe in the absolute sovereignty and providence of God. We can say, I'm glad that's over with. No. No. What does it mean? I'd like to share a few things from a man I've greatly appreciated his Christian testimony over the years. I learned more about him a um, good 15 or so years ago when I was in the library of Pastor John Ashbrook. And as he was getting near the end of his life, uh, I learned from my first visit there that he was slowly clearing out his library and he would do so by saying, as we finished having our talk and our prayer time together, he said, Dan, um, feel free to take any book you want, except for these. He had his little special section that he reserved for someone else. But, uh, well, that's a good way to guarantee future visits from Dan Greenfield. You know, pick any book you want. One of the books I picked was Life and Letters of Stonewall Jackson uh, by his wife. Thomas Jackson was a Confederate general. So I'm going to have a little difference of opinion he fought for the South, not so much for slavery by his own admission, but for their belief in the constitutional right to do what they wanted to do as states. But I'm not going to get into that. Jackson was a godly Presbyterian, and he has such a trust in God's sovereign providence that after a certain battle, he was, had a, a slight injury, and a general asked him, how can you remain so calm in battle, General Jackson? And Stonewall Jackson said this, My religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to be always ready whenever it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and all men would be equally brave. He put it in another way, one of his favorite things that he would often say that I've relayed to my kids over the years is that duty is ours and consequences are God's. This doesn't mean that you can just go do whatever you want. Who gives us our duty? The Lord does. We must obey God and we leave the consequences to whom? We leave it to the Lord. If you know anything about Civil War history or Thomas Jackson's uh, life history, you know that uh, he was um, shot by one of his own troops, an accident uh, that resulted ultimately in his death. They had to amputate his arm. 
And uh, after um, his arm was amputated, um, his doctor, Mr. Lacey, said, Oh, General, what a, what a sad thing, what a calamity. And I'm reading this as an illustration to you of absolute trust in the Lord, like letting God be God, and my focus needs to be on trusting him and obeying him, and the confidence that that gives. And this will come out not next week because I'm not preaching this week. Next week, well, the missionary, but this is going to especially come out in the following week when we look in Daniel 3. The confidence that you have when you're trusting God and you're letting him be him. How did Stonewall Jackson respond to, what a tragedy that you lost your arm? General Jackson, with his accustomed politeness, thanked him for his sympathy and then said this, You see me severely wounded, but not depressed, not unhappy. I believe it has been done according to God's holy will, and I acquiesce entirely in it. You may think it's strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today. For I am sure that my heavenly father designs this affliction for my good. The guy just lost his arm. And he said, I am more happy and more content than ever. I am perfectly satisfied that either in this life or in that which is to come, I shall discover that which is now regarded as a calamity is a blessing. And if it appears a great calamity, as it surely will be a great inconvenience, you've got to love his humor there. Yeah, it's going to be an inconvenience to lose my arm. If it appears a, as great a calamity as, as it will be an inconvenience to be deprived of my arm, it will result in a great blessing. I can wait until God, in his own time, shall make known to me the object he has and thus afflicting me. But why should I not rather rejoice in it as a blessing and not look on it as a calamity at all? If it were in my power to replace my arm, I would not dare do it unless I could know it was the will of my Father in heaven. When he was first shot, he thought he was going to die. And he said about that, he said it was a precious experience when I was brought face to face with death and found all was well. So he thought he's dying, but he had peace in his heart. I learned an important lesson that one who's been the subject of converting grace and the child of God, so if you're saved, you can, in the midst of the severest sufferings, fix the thoughts upon God and heavenly things and derive great comfort and peace. But that one who has never made his peace with God, in other words, they're lost and unsaved, would be unable to control his mind under such sufferings so as to understand properly the way of salvation and repent and believe on Christ. I felt that if I had neglected the salvation of my soul before, it would have been too late to the, until then. Christian, when you have unreserved confidence in the Lord, that gives you boldness. That gives you confidence that nothing in the world can, that even death cannot shake. In fact, as you're on the precipice of death, you're about ready to die, and you're going through that, you know... When all your strength is gone, you know, my God reigns. My God is in control. And I know that when I go through this door of death, I will not go to hell 
Because Christ has saved me, I will go to be with him and to be with him forever. The lesson we need to learn today on the bottom of your sheet is this. Stop. Repent of. Stop. Repent of trying to fit God into your way of thinking. Stop. Repent of trying to fit God into your way of thinking. That's what Satan did. That's what Job's friends did. That's eventually what Job did. Tried to fit God into their thinking. This is negatively stated. Let me make it in a positive statement. Just three words. How can I state this positively? Stop trying to fit God into your way of thinking. Positively stated, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. 